This is Conspiranormal. All right, guys. Welcome back to Conspiranormal. It's your host, Adam. And of course, Serfiel is also standing by. We are separated in distance, but not in mind. So, how's everything going, Serfio? It's going pretty good. Just looking forward to the holidays here, trying to uh, have as much normalcy as possible. Yeah, absolutely. It's gonna be a it's gonna be an interesting holiday season, that's for sure. Um, but we've got the guest on the line, um, Eric Davis, who has written an excellent book called High Weirdness that we're going to talk about, and we're going to talk about some other um, aspects of his studies as well. Eric, welcome to Conspiracy Normal. Hey, happy to be here. Thanks for thanks for doing this. We're kind of the skin of our teeth today on this, but uh, we 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 got it. To, we made it happen. So I'm, I'm the future, man. Everything is skin <laughs> of the teeth. <laughs> yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so I think we're just we're we're going to start off a little bit. I kind of want to what we want to talk about is like kind of your background and um, kind of like we're like I guess the cultural milieu that you kind of came from. And how that kind of inspired you to, to write this book and to talk about the other um, subject we're, we're going to talk about tonight. Yeah, well, thanks for asking that. It's actually been an interesting uh, uh, topic for me lately. Um, after I, you know, High Weirdness is based on my PhD dissertation that I, I got at Rice uh, just, just a few years ago. So kind of a midlife uh, return to graduate school. And when the book came out, you know, I was really, I was pleased with it and I've been, you know, talking about it. And then since then I've been like, well, what am I going to do? And uh, one of the things I've been doing is going like, you know, I, the, it, you know, that classic thing is happening where like the older I am, the more I've studied, the more I've thought about a lot of stuff, the more I realize that I don't really know anything. Uh, and then this is sort of intensified by our current climate of, you know, fake news and, massive information overload and this kind of ambient sense of conspiracy and uh, the, the, the profoundly unsettling nature of, of our reality. And I was kind of like, what, 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 what can I do here? And for me, one of the solutions is just to actually just understand a little bit better who I am, not so much my personal, like psychological issues or neuroses or whatever, but more like um, the, the place I came from, because right. that's real. You know, like I grew up where I grew up. I went to the high school I went to. I went to the college I went to. I did the things I did. And those have all influenced my work, which is, you know, whether you like it or not, unusual. So it's a, it's a, it's an interesting way to kind of both do a sort of personal uh, reflection, but it also creates a context to kind of understand uh, what I've been doing for decades, really. But, you know, definitely what what led into uh, high weirdness. So, um, you know, I've been, I've been doing that on, uh, on my sub stack called the burning shore. And it's kind of a mix of like personal essays and then more, you know, philosophical cultural theory things kind of like high weirdness, but I'm trying to do a, doing a blend. So I've been thinking a lot about precisely this question and, um, you know, I'm, I'm a very much a Californian, you know, I, I'm a fifth generation Californian. My, forefathers were here before the gold rush in the bay area and oh, wow. uh you know and i i 
grew up uh, very much immersed in a certain kind of coastal Southern California post hippie uh, permissive, you know, kind of, you know, it was like a university, a lot of professors lived in the town and, you know, it's very, uh, I guess you'd say privileged now, but, uh, but, you know, also still pretty gritty, a lot of surfers, a lot of wandering stoner types. And uh, uh, partly just for the entertainment value, me and a lot of my friends growing up in high school in the early 80s, uh, we just got into weird spiritual stuff. I mean, we were kind of seekers, but we were also just kind of stoners. And we appreciated the the sort of marvels of Zen or going to the Hare Krishna temple or going to the, uh, you know, uh, uh, other, you know, doing meditation, you know, chanting for six hours or, you know, psychedelic journeys or, uh, you know, that kind of stuff was just sort of, it was ambient. And, you know, I feel in retrospect that I, I felt like I kind of like took it on, like I sort of was uh, absorbed it. Uh, almost stained with it. And then, you know, through the rest of my life, I've, I've been kind of like, well, what is that stuff? And like, where does it come from? And how does it work? And where does it go? And is it good? Is it bad? Uh, and, you know, so then I, I got more of an intellectual, uh, you know, training in, in university. And then um, I did a, a, one of the, I think, you know, I don't know how you guys feel about it, but sometimes it feels like I, I actually haven't really made that many decisions in my life that what looks like a really vexed decision at the time. In retrospect, you can kind of see how it was already sort of set up. Right. But I do, I do believe that there are moments in, in some, in people's lives where there is a kind of bifurcation point. It's like you're, you're balancing on the tip of a knife edge and it's like even the universe doesn't know which way you're going to go. And uh, I think my decision to not go to graduate school after after uh, after college was was one of those. And I just went to uh, I became a freelance writer. And that kind of balanced out the intellectual side of my work with like writing pop criticism and rock criticism and, you know, taking culture very seriously, too seriously. You know, and, you know, these days, every uh, cultural criticism is everywhere and it's always free and back then you could actually get paid to do it for a little <laughs> while you know and i was kind of the last wave in some ways of of people where it was it was a kind of a, a more available than it was than it is now as a sort of career if you will um but that was really great because it let me um pay attention to lots of stuff and write short quick funny articles that also helped me make me a better writer, more, you know, you know, snazzy or, you know, street smart or whatever, like that has, has more of that um, journalistic fabric to it. Uh, and I could, I could indulge my fascination with everything, you know, so it was, it was a wonderful thing to do. And then in a lot of ways, my, my writing career has been kind of like weaving all these things together, kind of my personal interests and spirituality and altered states and the history of religion and the history of California with both like more intellectual questions and, and training. And then like a journalist called an essayist approach uh, 
to uh, to writing and really enjoying writing like lately my I've really been enjoying writing again you know kind of high weirdness is super dense I like the way it's written but it's very dense and I'm trying to like play with that again so I've always been changing I'm not a I'm not a I'm a I'm a I'm a publicist nightmare because none of my books are really the same mm. they're not like a genre it's like there's a book about Led Zeppelin and there's like a coffee table book and it just, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. <laughs> oh yeah. I, I noticed that whenever I was like looking up some of your other stuff and I was like, this guy's written a whole book about like Led Zeppelin four. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah. That 33 and a third uh, series is really cool. Yeah. It was, it was a, a great one to, to write for, you know, it's uh it was um, I was and and I had some, because I think I'm numbers like I think I'm set number 17 so pretty early on I had a friend who did the first one and I thought oh this is perfect and I hadn't been writing that much rock criticism at that point that was like the middle 2000s and -hmm. I did a lot of music writing in the 90s and it was it's really fun to write about music and write about heavy metal like when I in the 90s um, like I was sort of like a, you know, smart ass rock critic, you know, like I wrote for Spin and The Village Voice and, you know, I did some stuff for Rolling Stone, did reviews for Rolling Stone or whatever. Um, but not a lot of people like me wrote about metal. So that was just a, a kind of field day for me uh, to write like kind of weirdly and intelligently about critically about metal. Uh, and so when I, when I was thinking about the 33rd, I was like, oh yeah, that'd be so much fun just to dive into rock writing again. And, um, you know, and I thought about what record to do and then it was just totally clear I had to do Led Zeppelin. And then I thought about what Led Zeppelin record to do. And that was hard because, Mm. because it's four is not my favorite. You know, my, I, 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 depending on my mood, I'm going to go Led Zeppelin three or I'm going to go physical graffiti. Yeah, you know, but then there's parts of House of the Holy that I just completely love. It's some of my favorite stuff on House of the Holy. But there's four with the great Stairway to Heaven on it. And it was clear that if I was, if there was going to be a 33 and a third book on Led Zeppelin that was going to be definitive, I had to write about that record. And I'm really happy I did. I was the most fun I've ever had writing. It was, it was like three months of obsessive amusement. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Well, you were you were also in a position to witness a lot of things that happened in uh, psychedelic and alternative cultures as they really first began to interface with technology and the internet in the '90s. Uh, so you got to be known as uh, someone who wrote about that interface. Yeah, that was a you know a, a lucky thing. You know, uh, I went the 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 sort of initiation of that was an event called the. The Cyberthon. Oh my God, does that sound <laughs> early 1990s, doesn't it? But it was real. And what the Cyberthon was, it was held in the Bay Area, in, in you know San Francisco, south of San Francisco, and uh, it brought together very consciously technological innovators and psychedelic people and sort of the whole earth catalog crew, you know, that Stuart brand kind of uh, current of sort of smart hippie technology use. And Jaron Lanier was there with the VPL glove and talking about virtual reality. And Terrence McKenna was there and William Gibson was there talking about cyberpunk. And it was just this weird melange, you know, that really Mm -hmm. felt and, 
these were the early days of Monda 2000 and all that. And it was, you know, before Wired magazine. So there really was this kind of weird moment, which in retrospect, you can be, I don't want to say cynical about, but you can see how it was just a, a very, a brief blip on something that was much more about, you know, capital accumulation and technological capture than it was about the re resurrection of like 60s dreams. <laughs> but that tension has always been there. I mean, you guys are called conspiranormal. I mean, there's always that weird tension mm -hmm. really in, inside California counterculture between like this sort of exuberant, uh, you know, world creation and, and, you know, celebration of, of this kind of hedonic spiritual exploration, but taking place within a, a system or a, a situation that's, that's a lot more um, uh, shadowy in some ways. But at the time it was just a, it was a real marvel. And so that was a thread I got to kind of write about and tune into and, you know, hang out with William Gibson and Bruce Sterling and cyberpunk guys and, you know, go to Burning Man back in the day and things like that. So yeah, the nineties were, was a lot of fun for me. I mean, the nineties were like my sixties, mm -hmm. the early nineties, the, you know, ninety. Yeah, like 90 to 95, 96, 96. And then I kind of changed and sort of went in my own way. And I became, you know, that's when I wrote my first book, Technosis, which was the most difficult thing to write. That was that was really, really difficult to, 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 to get out there. And I didn't know if it was even going to be meaningful to people. Um, you know, it's, it's similarly dense to high weirdness. Uh, took a lot longer to write. It was really, really hard. And when it came out, it was just like, whatever, you know, I got a couple of reviews and stuff, but over time it just developed a really cult, a real cult following. Uh, and um, even now people read it and it blows their minds. Like somehow, somehow I was able to write a book about technology over 20 years ago that people can read now and be like, yeah, <laughs> you know, like, I, I don't know how that happened. There's nothing about social media. There's nothing about iPhones, but um, somehow there's something about the vibe uh, or the, the, the angle on the topic, the kind of irrational side of technology, the, both the dark conspiratorial, conspiratorial side and the magical imaginative side and just the way in which it infuses with our own dreams, really, um, in good and bad ways. Uh, that all seems, I think, pretty relevant to to people today, too. So, like the basic concepts were there, even then. Like, what was I think the, those basic concepts go all the, go way back. I mean, that's like mm -hmm. one part of technosis is all about electricity. You know, like, you know, how sexy is the telegraph now? Not very sexy, but at the time, people freaked out about it like the way they freaked out about the internet in the mid nineties. They, you know, there mm -hmm. was like, there's a famous lines in the book, some congressman who probably was making money off of it too. So you got to remember there's always hype going on as well, but some congressman goes, this, this new invention will eliminate space and time, you know, because <laughs> they were, you were able for the first time in history to send a message effectively instantaneously between like Baltimore and New York city. I mean, if, if you've never done that before, when you first do that, it's just completely mind blowing. I mean, it's like, it's, you know, 1850s, it's like, or 40 in the 1840s, like people are, you know, goofy hats and fa funny facial hair and there's no cars or anything. And then suddenly you can send a message like that, that blows people's minds. And they see in that, you can see almost like there's a, 
a, a, a little pressure put on history and you can glimpse all the possibilities. And what I, what I think happens, and this is one of the main things that's in technosis with new technologies and it's different today. I'll, I'll talk about that, but just it, it, in some ways it's different today, but, but for a long course of the, of the modern world, you know, the modern scientific worlds, 16th century, 17th century, 18th century, 19th century, 20th century, new technologies would come along. And it's like, you could, you can almost use them like, as like, uh, uh, um, like portals to see the future and project a future. And so if you have a positive view of the future, you can see, oh my God, we're going to be able to use this technology to drink, bring people together and to right. create universal learning. Like television was like that. Oh my God, it's going to bring the world together. It's not, we're going to have peace. People are going to be able to understand each other. Uh, there's going to we have a new mechanism to educate people. And those, those dreams, some of them are hype. You know, someone's just selling something, but a lot of them are not. A lot of them are really people want the modern project to be better than it is. They want peace on some level. I mean, not everybody, but a lot of people, they want learning to be available to people, not based on, you know, being in the right group or having money or whatever it is being in one country. And, and so you see the dream come up again. It came up with the telegraph. It comes up with radio, it comes up with television, television, right? Like which we associate the boob tube. It's an idiot machine, right? You know, at best, it kind of knits together the world uh, sort of in some fragile simulacral kind of consensus. Uh, but people really believe that. And of course, it happened with the Internet as well. And the 90s was that moment. The early 90s was that moment. You got to feel it. You got to see you could feel the presence of these possibilities. Were they really there like in, in a sit in a more. A realistic, even somewhat cynical later view looking back, were those possibilities there or was it always BS? Right. You know, I've talked to people from the 90s. We have interesting conversations about precisely that. And I come to think that, no, actually, those historical possibilities are there just as they are now. I mean, we have the possibility to create, I don't know, through universal basic income and a certain kind of communistic use of technologies to take us away from a certain sort of individualism and, you know, or to take on the, the issues of climate change with robust creative technologies. And, you know, those, those are our historical possibilities now, but, at, but, you know, our moment for so many reasons, we can't even see those. And when people tell us about them, at least, I don't know, I can't speak for you guys, but when people start talking about, oh, we'll be able to do this, I, I just instantly, oh, this is just a PR scam. Like they're just making a move on some sort of do-goody, you know, uh, demographic. Like it's really hard to yeah. feel very positive about things. But for better or worse, na naive, and, which it was, and also idealistic and also creative and fun and indulgent and all of that kind of stuff, the, the early 90s was an interesting moment, especially if you also had a cyberpunk sensibility. That's what was kind of mm -hmm. weird about it in retrospect um, was that the cyberpunk, you know, the, you know, like you read William Gibson, if you, if you take those books as definitive, but not just him, you know, John Shirley and, and, and uh, Pat Cadigan and whatever, those, they're, 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 they're dark or they're twisted. Right. They're, they're heavy. You know, they're like not 
it's not a happy world. There's like corporations, there's all this stuff that's sort of more kind of like our world now. But there's there's still some hope in it. There's still like the protagonists who are there's still room for the rebels kind of like It's true. Yeah, there's still that space. And I think that I think part of the uh fatigue, depression, um uh, sort of listlessness, uh, sadness, whatever that a lot of people are feeling now. I mean, partly it's COVID, obviously, but partly is it's like the sneaking suspicion that we don't even get that. Right. You know, and that, that I think is really, that's something really to sit with. And it's interesting to ask that question historically, because it's the same thing about the 90s. You can say, because you, you could almost sit historically and look back and, and, and come up with two different narratives, fundamentally different narratives that I think both have their place. And in one, you go, histories are always open. These possibilities are possible. It could have gone this way, could have gone that way. Who knows? Maybe being an idealistic acid gobbling hippie could have been the right way to create an actually better manifest world than the one that we wound up with and that we should look back at those struggles and dreams obviously you know this is true politics too because or, you know like more uh, overt politics as well because we can look at you know how do you deal with with terrorists the weather underground uh was is that a good idea or a bad idea like i don't know i don't know maybe if they'd done it right it would have like shocked these people and then things would have responded and we might have had a better world but you know, you, you know, it's, it's, you can't really tell, but there's another way of looking at where like, it's all, you know, it's, it's harder to see how there was ever a lot of room for maneuver because the, the forces arrayed against that kind of uh, uh, rebel stuff, uh, especially now where yeah. rebellion is sold back to us and we don't even know what it means anymore. Um is it's uh you know it's 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 hot, you know it's hard to sometimes yeah. hard to see so i think it's important to keep both both of those perspectives both on the past and in our current moment well and with some of the stuff we're going to explore later too it makes me wonder uh seems like you're kind of hinting that there's a relationship be- between this kind of hopelessness and the lack of that space and where a lot of these narratives have gone now into more spiritual dimension more um darker you know almost with these gnostic tinges of the archons and things like that so so yeah i can i can definitely see a relationship there too uh but uh want to kind of get into the 70s a little bit i know you you put out this uh book last year so you said you went through uh you know the press circuits with it and uh but your book high high weirdness uh drugs esoterica and visionary experience in the 70s uh me and adam have been digging into uh thoroughly enjoying it um but before you really get into it, how would you how do you define high weirdness for this purpose, and and what made the '70s particularly weird? Well, you know, I, what I was interested in is talking about extraordinary experience, but not using religious language or even particularly occult language to talk about it. That means when things are happening that just go beyond the pale. You can't chalk them up to your own, just your own mind. It's too weird for that. There's synchronicities happening. You're talking to 
um, disincarnate beings. Uh, there's too much information flooding you, whatever, some kind of extraordinary experience, which of course many people were having in the 60s and continue to have in the 70s uh, with psychedelics. So psychedelics are really sort of funny because they provide the occasion for extraordinary experiences, um, but then you're, it's not really sh clear what to do with them or what, what to even call them or what, what category, if you can put them into a category. And so a lot of people, and this is very true of the, of the 60s, uh, in fact, one of the things that defines the 60s is the attempt to sacralize, to make sacred psychedelic experience. This is not necessarily what psychedelics are. They're not necessarily religious or spiritual pills or, or substances. But that's a lot about what the hippie experiment um, was about. And at the same time, it doesn't really quite fit religion as we no normally mean it. So I wanted to come up with a way of talking about what that is. What is it? in your personal experience, and I'm not just talking about psychedelics. I mean, this could be true for paranormal things, for precognitive dreams, for UFO encounters, for uh, any range of extraordinary experiences that are outside of the norm, that there's some way of talking about them, of acknowledging they're part of reality, or at least they're part of our reality. Not just my little mind projecting something. There's, some, there's something more going on about what this stuff is. So for me, weird was the perfect way of talking about it because it's a, it's a term we use, we know it. It's not a particularly uh, attractive term. There's something a little menacing about it. There's something a little adolescent about it. There's something uh, also kind of enchanted about it. And that all of those elements together to me say something really important about a domain that we might not otherwise think of in that, in that way. And so high weirdness is when that kind of weird zone just kicks into overdrive. And what the book is really looking at are the extraordinary experiences of these three or four guys, because two of them are brothers and they kind of have experiences long, alongside one another. Um, and the, the extraordinary books and ideas that they minted out of these experiences uh, and it all takes place in the 70s so it inevitably also kind of engages the 70s as the kind of second half of the 60s the place where the countercultural dreams of transformation are clearly not going to happen or at least they're not going to happen in the way everyone thought they were or on a mass scale instead people have to kind of go out and sort of invent their new realities whether they're going into communes or developing you know new kinds of social movements uh, or in the case of of the people I'm writing about Terence McKenna Dennis McKenna Robert Anton Wilson and Philip Kiddick's a little different because he's he's not a psychedelic person in, in, in other ways, less identified with the counterculture. Uh, but he does very much participate in this kind of 70s turn towards something like spirituality, something like Gnosticism, something like the esoteric, but in a, a different key than in the past, something more science fictional, more technological, more psychedelic. Uh, and in a way more kind of, uh, I don't want to say desperate, but there's something, there's a real drive. 
there's an intensity, like a kind of let's break on through, like we weren't able to break on through quite in the 60s. Now we got to do it with the actual fabric of reality. Um, and of course, it doesn't quite ha doesn't work out exactly the way they thought. And that's classic for all seekers. Anyone who's who's on a journey knows it won't come out the way you think it will. Uh, and so my book is really a way of looking at these experiences, looking at the, the books these guys wrote, the texts they wrote about their experiences and just how the weird manifests in people's lives and how it uh, reflects and resonates with these larger cultural forces. And that's where it's important about the seventies, why I think the book is more relevant than it might seem like, Oh, another, you know, history of of people who had fun back when it was easier to have fun or whatever you know like uh you know it, 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 it there's a certain way in which especially 60 stuff is so yeah. so recycled and so we know all the stories we've heard about the 70s much less so it's a twistier time it's it's not as pretty um it's it's more you know there's more uh, it's more it's druggier it's sleazier all this you know there's a lot more of the shadow side is visible uh, but it's also a very creative uh, time very constructive time you know musically I think in some ways more creative I think there's this attitude about the 70s as it's like the counterculture had kind of failed in a certain way and you you kind of bring how there's like there's a general malaise. But out of that malaise, there's 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 also this kind of flowering that kind of goes away from the counterculture somewhat. Yeah, that's that's sort of how I see it. I mean, it's a it's a it's a complicated issue in some ways because I mean, some historians will, will push back. It's it's the common story about the '70s is the malaise story. It's like the, this was going to happen and then it didn't happen, and then it's just this big bummer. And it's interesting because in American history at least like mainstream, let's say mainstream American history. They're all good decades. Even World War II is for all its horror. And I mean, it's all horrible, but the Pacific theater was particularly horrible. I mean, that was, that was not a fun war to fight. So, but, but still there's this sense of heroism of the pluck and of the emergence of, of the United States as a world power. So of course it's got a certain oomph to it. And really the, you know, this is, there's just, there's, even the thirties there's some kind, you know, Sal, but we had the works programs and, you know, but like the seventies, nobody looks at it and tries to spin it good. You know, everybody's like, Oh yeah, that was a, that was the bummer. That's the bummer decade. It's the smog. We have a, we have a friend that uh, has been a frequent guest on this show. And he likes to say that uh, 1974 was the nadir of, of civilization. Like there was nothing good that happened in 1974. <laughs> <laughs> oh, contraire. There's so many great records, but, uh, but I appreciate it. I still get it. So there's been some pushback on that and even against my book, because I do adopt that point to a, a degree. I think it's true too. I think, it, and, and, um, and partly just based on talking to lots of people who live through those, uh, live through that, that era. Uh, but I think, but I, I do kind of wish I had emphasized a little bit more the creative, the range of creative responses. I mean, I talk about them, but like, you know, there's a lot of social movements, again, a lot of community construction, a lot of invention, a lot of like, well, it's not going to happen the way we want to. We got to build it, you know, let's do it. And, you know, the communes are the great kind of example of that, but there's a lot of other projects that are social projects, 
uh, that are based on new and all the people who are starting to step out and be like, I'm not going to be subservient anymore. You know, women's movement, gay movement, you know, uh, Native Americans, you know, what we now call Latinx, Chicano movements, like those are all part of that 70s moment in a lot of ways because it's it's really civil rights into the Black Panthers that sets the mode. Oh, that's how you begin to liberate yourself from this oppressive white patriarchy of, you know, mid-century America is you, you got to like get out there. And then so you see a lot of that kind of stuff, too, not to mention environmentalism. So in a lot of ways, though, I feel like our, our era now is um, really is kind of born in the 70s more than, than the 60s. One of yeah. the reasons we're nostalgic about the 60s is because it's somewhere else. But when yeah. you look at the 70s, you're looking at us. You're looking at environmental problems, right. terrorism, mm -hmm. social conflict, you know, popular culture out of control, drugs out of control. You know, it's it's a weird time. And that's there we are. And so that weirdness then reflects our weirdness now. I think in the 60s, there was much more uh, the the media really hit on to the counterculture and the hippies. And that was more paid attention to. And by the time you get to the 70s, the mainstream media really wasn't paying any attention to that. So all these underground movements were happening that weren't being like this community organizing and these type of things that you describe. And, and by the way, somewhere in this house hidden somewhere is a whole earth catalog. I want you to know that. Yeah, no, that, I think that that's a, that's a process that begins in the seventies and it gets more that way in the late seventies and even more that way in the eighties, you know, because when you, if people sit, start, you know, you know, quick, quick history where you like sink a whole decade down into a few images or like a basic story. It's like, oh, the 80s was conservative. Reagan was president. Greed <laughs> was in. It was all about Wall Street. And you're like, yeah. OK, sure. But by the way, all of that, all of those freaks kept freaking. And then the yeah. kids who came after them kept freaking, too. And if you peer beneath the the surface, if you pull back the, uh, the Wall Street uh, carpet and you look beneath in a place where nobody is looking, no one is looking down there. Like they don't, what? Like what, like hardcore scene in like, you know, Long Beach in 1980? Nobody's looking at that, you know, or whatever. But then all of those things start to develop so much creative energy and that really sort of sets in motion some of the later cultural developments of the late eighties and in the 1990s. Uh, so it's, it's actually really interesting that the, you know, and it, the more I learn about it, the more it's like the counterculture doesn't go away. It stops, it stops being like a counterculture and it becomes more like a whole symphony of subcultures, some of which are yeah. still pretty oppositional, but a lot of them are just happy to do their weird thing and be ignored. It's actually, it's for us today, we look back at that and we go, oh my God, that must have been so cool. Like you're just like, you're, you're, you're a punk band in Long Beach in 1979 or whatever. And you like, you put up some flyers and it's a crappy bar and there's like your, your friends and a couple of people who come down from LA. 
And we we keep we look at that now. We go, oh my god, that's like heaven, because <laughs> it's all <laughs> circulated and photograph this, and then you got to put it on the Facebook, and it's like this. That was an event. Does it even matter if it's there? It's not even there anymore because we have COVID. So there's there's something about that that quote of true underground, which it was in the sense that it wasn't as visible. It wasn't mediated in the same mm-hmm. way. That was still analog kind of uh, mediation and. We're in a very different, different era. Yeah. I, I look at the seventies and like the early to mid eighties is kind of like a golden age to me, like music wise and culturally, but, uh, cause I was a child at the time, but it's like a lot of other people didn't see it that way, you know, at the time. Yeah. It's funny about those things. They're, they're, they're not remembered the same way, you know? Yeah. Um, and and in a way that's all that too is kind of nice because if you decide if you want to dig into it like i have a friend who's like a scholar of zines yeah are you know they really start blowing up in the late 70s and then that that almost define that well at least it defines the kind of writing concept creation a print culture of the 1980s is this kind of zines which is sort of like under like underground newspapers which were huge in the 60s and early 70s they kind of transmute into these more private even more shadowy forms of creativity that are just extraordinary but they also don't quote unquote go anywhere so if you're not looking for them you don't care but if you look at them you realize that like you know this is true of history in general if you start digging around you're going to find all of these sparks all of these like just jeweled moments that are both sort of prophetic and they're, they're, they're kind of, it's not like idealistic, but they're just like these, just these beautiful moments uh, that in a way, even though they've happened 30 years ago, if you don't get too fetishistic about it, they, they still kind of charge you two or 40 years ago or whatever. Um, and, and that's actually for me is part of the, the, the pleasure, the mixed pleasure of, of being, you know, not, I wouldn't say predominantly historical as a, as a writer and thinker, but I, I really uh, consider, I consider most things in terms of their historical development, even though history is always just a story. Um, there, there is something about that actual material development of technologies and cultures and fashion and objects and media and how all those things change over time, especially in the 20th century and our, in our 21st century that uh, uh, that helps, I think, orient, can help orient one in the confusion. Mm-hmm. So high weirdness is, is pretty much synonymous with high strangeness, which is a term that gets thrown ar- around a whole lot in um, uh, different pe- in people's paranormal encounters, often with other beings and strange the more unexplainable and weird end of things like UFO encounters uh, with things that don't make sense. And one thing that these three individuals have in common is that at some, at some time, all of them believe that they were in some kind of contact with another intelligence. And they all had these strange experiences uh, around, around that contact yeah that, that's 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 one of the interesting that's where you can see that that phenomenon that i mentioned earlier where something that might have been we in the past might have been described 
in religious language. I saw God. I saw God. You know, um, suddenly it's it has a similar structure. There's some higher. We use the phrase higher intelligence. Um, but it's no longer clear what cosmology we're in. Are we in a science fiction cosmology? Are we in a, a weird fiction cosmology? Are we in some kind of esoteric, you know, occult, Kabbalistic, theosophical world <laughs> with multiple levels? Are we uh, psychotic? Like maybe we're just inventing it all. Maybe it's our own personal fiction. Like in the old days when people had authentic religious experiences, they weren't thinking that. You know, they might have been actually doing it, you know, whatever. You see Jesus at the crossroad and you fall down on your knees and you, you're converted. Well, you know, skeptically, we might say now, well, that person was probably just, you know, having like a sort of, you know, nervous breakdown and then in, interpreting it according to a certain cultural story that was around their their society. That makes sense. They that's ate some old the bread. People, yeah. Well, that's, but that's not how the people who experienced it are talking about it. One of the things that happens with all, all three of these guys is that even though they have these extraordinary experiences, this is really important. It's an important part of the book and not just the book, just about thinking about what kind of, what kind of weird world we're in. So even though they have these extraordinary experiences, they're all capable of going, wow, well, maybe I was totally psychotic. Or, wow, maybe that was just a, a complete fiction that was dredged out of my unconscious. And at the same time, they keep being interested in these experiences, even inculcating them, even wanting to bring them on. That is different. That's weirdness. That's what I mean. That's different than someone in the 19th century who has a vision of uh, an, an angel, uh, who either believes it or maybe they think it's a demon in disguise. I mean, there's always doubt. There's always like some possibility that the vision is not true, but the sort of secularization of it that you see among the people who are nonetheless having the visions, that is a, that's something that develops that I think really flowers in the seventies. It's there before for sure, but it really flowers in that period. I'd like to just go down uh, the line with him as far as uh, if you can give a brief explanation of like where um, of some of these uh, experiments that the uh, McKenna brothers did. Uh, then we'll get into the workings of Robert Anton Wilson and whatever happened to uh, Philip K. Dick with that pink beam. Yeah, I mean, these are all like classic tales. You know, I encourage anybody who likes weird stuff to, to read the original texts about these things. Uh, but they're, they're, they're for, you know, each one has their own little period of time that aren't too far apart from one another, which is interesting when you think about it. Uh, Terrence and Dennis McKenna were the youngest of the people I write about, and they were down in the Colombian jungle looking for some obscure kind of entheogen uh, or psychedelic compound and instead discovered lots of uh, magic mushrooms growing in the field of the, of the village they were staying in. The, the local Indians weren't eating the mushrooms, uh, but they, they did. Um, and as they were eating them, they started to feel like they were connecting with not like an other intelligence like was right in front of their eyeballs or something, but it was like their, their, their thoughts were being guided on 
and lean, and sort of as they kept talking and thinking and bringing all of their interests to bear, their interests in science fiction and physics and biology and ethnobotany in fantasy in counterculture, they started to build up this idea of, of an experiment and that this experiment would somehow, and it gets really complicated in the details, basically kind of end time <laughs> and fulfill the grand uh, sort of uh, alchemical stretch of history in this moment at which something transcendental would happen. We would be ushered into a galactic civilization. History as we know it is over, you know, full on kooky tune stuff. <laughs> um, and so they went for it and it didn't happen the way they thought it might happen. But something happened and that something was, well, really weird. And then in a way, the rest of their lives in different ways were impacted directly by that period of weirdness. Uh, and so that's the, exp the famous experiment at La Chirera. And Wasn't there this idea to make like the Philosopher's Stone too? Wasn't that an element of this? Yeah, the experiment on, on a more, I didn't, I kind of glossed over this details. But the idea was to actually sort of transform, well, you, you would create a kind of standing wave hologram that was sort of a mind matter fusion that was, then they used the language of the, of the Philosopher's Stone, meaning using traditional alchemical language, which uh, Terrence probably picked up from reading Carl Jung. And, but they thought about it in more science fictional terms. You know, he thought about it as a kind of solid state object, like an, like a, like a, uh, you know, like mm -hmm. a transistor, except on a cosmic scale. And so he's drawing equally from esotericism and science fiction and his own experiences. Uh, they both are as they develop this idea of a kind of object at the end of time. And Terrence would continue to talk about the object at the end of time throughout his life. We were talking about the 90s earlier at the Cyberthon. Terrence McKenna was also at the Cyberthon. And so from the very beginning, uh, his raps have always been involved in involved media and technology. Uh, in the late 60s, he was really into Marshall McLuhan and some of his first writings are really more about media than they are about psychedelics. So he's, he's known as the great like mushroom bard, but in a lot of ways he's been playing the same kind of science fictional game. It's just like what we talked about before with like the telegraph where something new happens and in the newness, you see a space for something that is truly transformative. And you just put all your money on that. You put all your, your bets on that. And most of the time, unfortunately, in history, things don't come out that way. And then you sort of have to deal with the, the residue of that. But there's something really admirable, not of being cautious, not of holding back, but of going like Terrence did. Wow, the political revolution didn't seem to work, but DMT is so bizarre that maybe we can actually change reality. And while that seems completely farcical in some ways, in many lights, there's something also, in my view, admirable about that. And it certainly set him up to be a very interesting and entertaining figure who, by the way, had a lot to do with giving the 1990s, the subculture yeah. in the 1990s, its particular flavor. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember the his influence. Um, I remember, you know, people listening to his lectures, reading his books. He had a big impact on when psychedelia really, you know, exploded on the internet. And uh, he really popularized DMT, I think, more than anyone. And with that came that idea of the the DM the famous DMT elves. So there's like another point of contact with some strange other. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the he did bring bring DMT into sort of popular culture where where it it lives bizarrely now. I mean, that's a that's sort of an interesting thing about the history of drugs is that sometimes drugs don't don't penetrate the cultural imagination, even if they're around. There was a lot of DMT around in the 1960s, but most people didn't like it. And most people didn't talk about it or weren't that into it, you know. Um, but, you know, Leary took it, Alan Watts took it, a lot of people took it, but most people, <laughs> they didn't pen it. It wasn't the story. LSD was the story. Later mushrooms was the story. But DMT was like, what do we do with this stuff? It's so bizarre. But in a way, as, as culture accelerated and as technology accelerated, in a way, DMT was the kind of visionary countercultural response to whatever was happening technologically that led to the, the, the hype around virtual reality or the sort of proto uh, World Wide Web world of the Internet before the World Wide Web happened, what was happening with the Internet in the early 1990s. DMT was kind of, in a way, part of all that. Uh, and and, and T Terrence, who was as interested in computers and media as he was in psychoactives and biology, was one of the bridges for that, that connection. And like Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. The whole time wave zero thing and... 2012 i mean i don't i don't think the uh that there would have been the kind of hype leading up to 2012 if it wasn't for terrence no no there, that, that there wouldn't have been i mean that was never my that was never the rap that i was that interested in but but you know it it, it had its place and it definitely had it had its influence uh moving on to robert anton wilson who is a definitely a big influence on both me and Adam. Oh I yeah. Know. Um, so he had a very strange, uh, high weirdness encounters uh, as well, but he seems to uh, be the person with the most, uh, what he called radical agnosticism and his maybe logic. And he seems to have really had a, a unique perspective on high weirdness that also, crossed over into like his his thoughts on conspiracy and a lot of other things i think it's a real healthy way of of looking at things that could really help uh help us today yeah you know it's funny when i i i wrote this book when it came out i thought i would mostly end up talking about philip k dick who was you know the the main reason i started writing the book and then i decided to write it in 
include the McKenna's and Robert Anton Wilson. Uh, but I ended up talking about him the least. And the person I talked about the most was, was Robert Anton Wilson, because like, just as you say, both his approach to weirdness and conspiracy and his whole relationship to, to sort of truth and multiple angles on truth was so resonant for us to, today that uh, I, I ended up talking mostly about him in conversations or, or in, in interviews. And he's also interesting because he has a, a narrative more clear than the other guys where basically at some point he lost the plot. Like at some point he's doing all these crazy experimentation, like don't do this at home, kids, you know, don't take large doses of LSD and do, uh, you know, Crowley and ritual magic during the night, early 1970s, when you're living in Berkeley and you're surrounded by all this weirdness, you know, that's going to, that's going to create some challenging situations for you. And indeed it did for him, including basically, you know, going into a, a sort of, whatever you want to call it, you know, a paranoid religious uh, um, metaphysical esoteric conviction that he was in communication with these extraterrestrial intelligences associated with Sirius. And, uh, and, you know, that lasted for a while. And then he kind of got out of it. And in getting out of it, he developed a certain way of navigating the ambiguity the suggestiveness, the menace, the magic of conspiracy thinking in the broadest sense, not just about like JFK or whatever, but just there's, there's some kind of plot or there's some deep, deeper connection in reality or something. And, you know, a lot of esoteric and occult thinking has a quality of conspiracy to it or Gnostic thinking as well, as you, as you mentioned earlier. So he comes out of this experience with a certain style of thinking that in some ways is kind of a show. It's sort of his shtick, you know, and it's his, you know, it's like this is his punk rock band in the underground uh, subculture zone of the late 1970s because he goes on to influence people in the late 70s, particularly throughout the 1980s. Um, you know, a lot of underground influence, the Church of the Subgenius, the emergence of chaos magic in, in the UK in the 70s and 80s. You know, so he plays an important, if, you know, already kind of underground role, partly because he has this shtick, a kind of like wisecracking, uh, avuncular, uh, smarty pants, who you, who you wouldn't mind just hanging out with and chatting, you know, knows a lot. Uh, and... But, it, but that whole kind of persona comes out of this sort of trial by fire. And I agree with you that there, I believe there's a lot in, in Wilson's approach, both philosophically, and I mean that in the specific sense of like, how do we think, in term, you know, how do we think about epistemology? How do we think about uh, skepticism? What does skepticism really mean? Let's look at it historically. Like you can have like a sort of, you know, uh, whatever uh, history of philosophy discussion about skepticism that winds up at Robert Anton Wilson with, you know, for good reason. Uh, so there, there are some ideas there that are really interesting, but it's also as much a kind of attitude 
a sort of lifestyle, not a lifestyle, but like a, a sort of way of moving through life that yeah. I think has a lot of appeal for people who see enough to not be able to buy the mainstream story anymore, but don't want to, for very good reasons, go into a, a kind of reality tunnel uh, of, of, you know, oh, the Orion, you know, the aliens from Orion are manipulating the pharma corpse and they're taking over the, you know, whatever, like all the sort of <laughs> nest of, of, of conspiracy that is now part of pop culture. It's part of news. It's part of social reality. Um, so in, in that way, though not perfect, I think Wilson is a, is a real tonic. And um, I hope to, you know, I, I hope that my book and other things that I've done can, can bring forward some of that, uh, some of that tonic. I, I will say that Wilson, you know, I, reading the uh, Luminatus trilogy, I read that when I was in college, and uh, when I was listening to the audiobook of your of your book, just hearing that brought back memories, and 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 I I kind of think about Wilson now, and I kind of think about like the way that my our attitude about conspiracy theories and about like he was he was somebody that just did not he was interested in them he he took it seriously but he could also laugh about this stuff too so he was the first one that kind of exposed me to those kind of ideas you know it's it's a real issue and I, i'm just going to dive right into it because partly i just i you know I, I was just in the car for two hours today and i listened to uh I just started listening to this podcast. You may be familiar with it. It, it was from a couple of years ago. I think he's still doing them. Um, Mike S. Judge. Uh, death is around, just around the corner. Death is around the corner. No, just around the corner. Let me get, get it right. Yeah. Death <laughs> is just around the corner. And it's a conspiracy podcast, but he's way smarter than most of the conspiracy podcasts I've listened to. I mean, he... At every point when he talks about something where I've like drawn the line, like, okay, guys, I'm willing to think about this, but that's just too, that's just too much. He's like doing, drawing the same line, you know, like he, he was talking about MK ultra, the famous, uh, you know, sort of military intelligence program to support and manipulate many different studies and doctors and individuals to explore not just psychedelic drugs, but a variety of mind control tactics. And a lot is made about MKUltra in the, in the kind of pop conspiracy world of the internet. It goes into Project Monarch and mind control and blah, 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 blah. And so I'm listening to him and I'm, and I'm like, oh, wait, how's he going to deal with this? How's this guy going to do it? Because he's doing pretty, pretty good conspiracy stuff. And, and then he comes to it and he just goes, you know, I, I like all that stuff. No, that's not it. Basically, MK Ultra was just a big uh, failure, wherein uh, military intelligence forces basically subjected people, either knowingly or unknowingly, to a, a wide variety of horrific situations out of an attempt to produce something. And he's, you know, open to the possibility that they may have sort of put the uh, LSD in the water for the 1960s, so to speak. And there's good, re good reasons to think about that. How you interpret it is a different question. But one of the things I was thinking about as I, I listened to the show, which was about, it was about the 1960s. It was about the, 
development, the early, you know, proto-internet and the relationship of war to technology in the post-war era. And it, it gave a, you know, it was a grim view because you could kind of see the way that the whole game since the atom bomb or since World War II has been this weird cybernetic control mechanism that's been sort of absorbing and redistributing all of the social energies that's been, that have been produced by more positive kind of, uh, 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 whether they're cultural movements or political movements, um, and until we wind up in this, you know, increasingly challenging moment we're in. And then I was like, okay, what if he's right? Like, basically, like, not the sort of hardcore, bizarro, you know, Zeta reticuli, alien kinds of conspiracies or the really simplistic ones about Bill Gates or whatever. I mean, they're very simplistic and they're just not very, they're not supportable in most ways. They might be good allegories. They might be good like f myths that tell a truth about things that the mainstream doesn't acknowledge. That I fully acknowledge. But if it's a more uh, realistic kind of conspiracy that we're stuck. What, what's your attitude towards it? Do you think about it all the time? You know, are we, are we prisoners, you know, in some kind of thing where, where we're given lots of little uh, um, morsels of, of cheese to keep us occupied? Can we live like that? And I think that under the, the challenges of 2020, obviously more and more people have been looking into that void Right. I mean, that's it's clearly that some people I mean, that there's more people interested and susceptible to not very high quality conspiracy theory. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, and and, you know, and like I'm fine with it. It's like you guys aren't you guys aren't paranoid enough. You don't you believe these other sites like what that's it's worse than you think it is. Yeah. If you really want to go down that path. It's it's a lot freakier than that. You yeah. don't that, know that there's this multiplicity of conspiracies and that conspiracy narratives are probably increasingly used by other conspiracies. Exactly. Yes. You yes. know, and then, then you're stuck. And so then what do you do? And then, and, and what do you do means both, how do you think about the world? How do you think about politics, but also just how do you get through your day? How do you, how are you with your dog and, and the people in your neighborhood? And, you know, all of these things can become impacted by it. And there's so many people now who are just responding to this in, in just really uh, unfortunate ways. And, but we don't have the training. <laughs> you know, it's almost like that's like I, I did a piece on on the burning shore on my my Substack publication recently that got a lot of got a lot of response. I did a couple on conspiracy and the, the one I just did was called the the practice of paranoia. And what I was saying was that, like, if you read 60s material, underground newspapers, the electric Kool-Aid acid test, uh, you know, books by Ram Dass, they'll, they'll use the word paranoia a lot. And they, they don't mean it in a strictly pathological sense. They mean it is just like part of being an ordinary person in a stressful modern world mm -hmm. is to be paranoid sometimes. And it's sort of like, yeah, you got to deal with it. You got to take responsibility for it. You got to work with it. It's just there. And we, somewhere along the way, we lost that. 
And so I think that people are really naive about how the sort of mechanisms of paranoia, regardless of the truth or not truth of the story that's being told, but the sense of like the, the sort of dynamics of it. And if you're not aware of it, and if you don't own it, even own, own the dread, own the fear, own the confusion, you know, which is not easy to do. But if you don't tr start to learn how to do this, and then you go and try to find out what's really happening with COVID, that's a recipe for disaster. And it's a disaster that is part of our current moment. Mm -hmm. um, and it's something that, you know, again, I'm, though Wilson was in a different era and he's not a perfect figure by any means, there's something about his ability, his, his quality of humor and his willingness to suspend even dark scenarios that are probably true. And it's not that you suddenly say, oh, that they're not true. It's that you don't let that thought of its truth completely dominate you. In a way, it's like, it's a, it's a sort of, this is what freedom looks like in a post-war, highly technological, highly controlled, but also highly chaotic world. It doesn't look like freedom, like I'm off on, you know, I go out into the wilderness and I build a cabin and I, I do everything that I, I know how to build everything. And like that kind of freedom, you know, some people can still pull it off, but that's not really where we're at. Our freedom is, is more vexed and more uh, uh, in the moment and in a way more about our own mind streams, not just in a personal way, but in a, in a kind of cultural sense. Uh, and I think that he gives really good uh, hints of how to go into those spaces and recognize that there's stuff we don't understand that's going on, that there are major players who are playing extremely heavy games, taking advantage of our current chaos and of the, the virus and all, all manner of things. And there's multiple agents and they're, they're fighting it out through us. And we mm -hmm. can't even, we can bear, we don't even, we don't have a scorecard. Um, and you don't want to just put your head in the sand, but you also, there's a certain limit on what you're, you can learn little parts of the story and you can, you know, if that's what you want to do and be a journalist about that and get, get the word out. Great. But that's different than this kind of pop culture, entertainment, paranoid, social media driven, sticky muck, which is, is, is just, it's not even, it's like, it's like what they had to take, like everything's not quite as good as it used to be. Heavy metal's not good, as good as it used to be. Uh, you know, whatever. You know, go down the go down the list. It's not true, actually. Beer is much better than it used to be. There's there's a number of things that we yeah, really that's do, true. Do, we do enjoy in, in this era. But but conspiracy theory is not as good as it used to be. I mean, it was fun in the 1990s, man, or it's true. even in the 2000s. It's, it's true. Know? It's true. It's 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 absolutely true. And and you talk about. I mean, I, I guess we're here. I guess we're we're, we're talking about this, um, which is this has been a theme on this show lately that we have that we have talked about trying to really get people to kind of understand what we mean by the by like old school conspiracy theory as opposed to what's going on now. But it's you, almost you, like we need a new name. What I mean, it's yeah. I mean, it's like the, it's it's a totally it's a totally different thing. It's a totally different concept. But you talk about this in the section about um, Robert Anton Wilson, and I mean, this is perfect for what is going on right now, is when he comes out of the Chapel Perilous, it's like you have two two choices. You can either become 
completely paranoid or you can approach everything as a radical agnostic. And more and more, I see myself as the latter. Yeah. 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 And I, I'm, I'm, I'm in the same boat and, and, and for me being my version of it, which, you know, a lot of people in these waters, uh, you know, probably are ultimately a little bored by is, is, is that, uh, you know, I have, I still have a lot of respect for journalism or Mm -hmm. critical thinking or academic history or, you know, scientific discussion, you know, like I, I'm, I'm not like willing to kind of totally pull the rug out from under all of these mechanisms. I mean, on some level, I think you have to do that, but then once you're, once you're blasted open, you go, okay, well, what, what can we kind of sort of work with here? Yeah. And so it's not agnosticism where you, where you say the guy on the corner who's talking about the aliens and the fifth dimension is, has the same weight as the whatever PhD neuroscientist who, who talk, who tells you something about how, you know, whatever goes on. And it's not like that guy's got it either, but there's, it's like, it's a, it's a variable field. Yeah. Um, uh, that's, that's sort of the way, the, the way I kind of move through it. Yeah, I mean, the the thing that uh, I want to highlight is that I kind of believe that you got to know the rules before you can break them. And the same thing goes with, like, so many people are getting into this alternative um, information environment who don't even, like, know the official narratives yet to even question them in the first place. So it's like they're only being exposed to the alternative information. Um, and that's really weird. No, it is. And it's, it's also, and for me, it's also a little, sometimes it's a little sad or poignant. And what I mean by that, why I, I use that emotional language is that um, for a lot of people who are, again, like getting into this low grade conspiracy theory, that is taking advantage of the way that they don't know the rules in the first place is that a lot of what makes it appealing is not just like, as a lot of critics say, Oh, it's, it simplifies the complexity of reality, which I think is true. I I think that the scariest thing is that reality is out of control and nobody's in charge and that's terrifying. And so it's better to believe in malevolent forces, Mm -hmm. but it's also that there's, there's in that in 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 the in those narratives there's still room for a kind of collective sense of hope that the rest of us have a hard time focusing exactly i mean maybe certain ways personally or in our lives or whatever but they want to believe these alternative narratives because then they're part of a movement of a group that's yeah and then you're you have not just that you have importance but that you're actually on the right side you are a good person and you're working for the good by by forwarding that email or whatever it is and so that's where it just gets kind of sad because it's not like i went oh come on come over here where it's we're more cynical and confused (laughs) you know it's not a very pretty environment and yet i'm i'm you know i i i believe not that we can ever nail down truth with a capital T, but the work of truth 
in the old school enlightenment sense or in the journalistic sense, in the sense that we try to explain and understand history and understand how physics works and understand how social institutions work and understand how, how uh, politics and political economy work. And we really try to do it and it's confusing and we know we're not getting the whole story and it's just a mess and it probably will always be that way, but you just keep working on it. To me, that's, the, that's being good. But there's this other kind of good that's much more appealing. And you see, and I think that's part of what makes it so um, sticky. What, what, what makes it spread is not just that it's taking advantage of people, not knowing what's going on or, you know, freaking them out or terrifying them. It's almost in some ways the opposite. It gives them a way to feel good about who they are. Yeah, we, we have a friend, Aaron Gullius, who's written a few books and is a producer of this, uh, the Saucer Life podcast. And he he recently gave a, a talk about these um, conspiracy narratives with positive outcomes. And so and they almost kind of have this like millennial feeling to them. they do. Yeah. No, I think that's more of it than we I think depending on where we are trying to understand, let's just talk about Q just because it's sort of the yeah, easiest yeah. way of, of focusing it. I think that if you're, if you're coming from the, from journalism, you know, kind of le- liberal, whatever that kind of world, or, or even if you're coming from a kind of conspiracy theory underground, like, like me, it took me a while to see that not just among certain believers, but actually in the material itself, that is the creative material, whatever's coming out, there are millennialist cult ideas that are more electric than I kind of first thought. Like I first thought, oh, it's just about the deep state and fighting back against these evil and they put, give, they make Trump be the savior and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, it's deeper than that. It's yeah. deeper than that. And there's something about like, a kind of it's like people are so sick of the incredibly compromised quote unquote deal that we get from modernity like come along with us buy our game we'll give you drugs that will extend your life we'll uh, we'll give you good media along with whatever and there's just like almost like a physical revulsion and so a desire to say no i'm reject all that but there's this other thing that's going to happen there's this change that's coming. There's a transformation of the body or a transformation of the earth. And I'm like, oh, wow, this is like really, it's really potent. It's really like a real religion in that yeah. sense to some degree, or at least for some people. Well, that's something you've really been highlighting is the increasing like spiritual dimension to all to conspiracy theory. And it's it's almost you know it's resembling these weirder elements of Gnosticism, and you talk about how collectively as a society, um, you know, being a lot more glued to these devices and the media and getting all these people getting exposed to these narratives, that society as a whole is kind of going through the Chapel Perilous that Wilson talks about. Uh, but we don't have a way to navigate it. But I just, I, I really see things like that as just becoming increasingly more spiritual. And, you know, now the demonization of, uh, you know, uh, people's political parties that they don't like, it's not just, you know, uh, 
the usual. It's like, no, they, they're in contact with the demonic forces. Yeah, no, it's true. It's, and it's true on both sides. It really is. It's that, you know, I mean, it, it, the, the phrase in religious history to describe that is, is Manichaeism. Mm. Where you you draw a strict strict line between two forces and one's good and one's bad and it's a weird thing because it didn't you know obviously it didn't always exist you know it's like there's ways to think about the world where it's a plurality and you know and, and the strength of democracy and it's also its vulnerability but I I, I still don't see a better game in town uh, is you know it, it's a it's it's a messy pluralism. But for that to work, there have to be certain, you know, a certain willingness to tolerate amb- amb- ambiguity or, or confusion or not knowing where people are coming from or difference. Uh, uh, and that, that the space of that kind of way of being, at least in the media, is disappearing. I mean, sometimes I feel like we're being hoodwinked. I mean, of course, we're being hoodwinked in many ways, but in the sense that that maybe people like just everyday people, everybody, not just the ones who do this or the ones who, you know, light fires or the ones who, uh, you know, buy AK-47s or whatever, but like that, that, that we're not quite as split as we think that if we're actually physically sharing, if I show up in the town, maybe I can have a reasonable conversation with the guy in the diner, but increasingly it looks like that's just not, you know, it's less and less likely. It's true on some level that deep down, we probably have a more like ingrained sense that, well, we all get through it. You, you, you believe what you believe we're going to struggle, you know, struggle, but you know, I see where you're coming from. Like on some basic level that we're like that, but the media environment has so transformed consciousness and identity and information and world building and that I, I think that part of what we're seeing is that and then that being weaponized by the more nefarious forces that gain from right. social dysfunction and political dysfunction. And that's where you get into the archon stuff. Well, and the, the great, uh, great irony of a lot of this is that Wilson and the other Discordians might have kind of created a blueprint um, that is being used now to um, engage in this, this kind of information war. So they're the Discordians had all this, uh, all these uh, things going on, like what they called operation Mindfuck, where they were inserting things into the media, trying to create myths. And, uh, you know, now it seems like that is uh, something like that is in full swing, but it's in a lot less, um, coming from a lot darker place obviously yeah no it's it's totally true i mean and i think that that's true not just about wilson and the discordian thing but about the counterculture in general i mean who is the counterculture right now who's enjoying being countercultural right now it's it's much more on the right yeah on the left you don't have you don't have enjoyment on the on the left you have whatever you want to call it like a call for justice. Uh, I'll put it that way. Uh, and, and, and I mean it, I mean that in both a, a positive and then increasingly a somewhat restricted sense uh, because of the way in which those calls have become 
uh, dominant over a certain tone that doesn't have a lot of room for anything like a discordian sense of play or paradox or confusion or uh, humor. And mm -hmm. so it's, it's, a, it's a longer swing than, than even just these particular tactics of, of media mindfuckery. It's, it really has to do with the whole kind of countercultural spirit. And, you know, it's that, and, and for me, that's, that is somewhat dispiriting because I, I really, in a way, identify with that current and there's not a lot of room for it anywhere uh, now. And, and, and it, you know, in a way it's kind of like that sort of chaos. It's a lot like democracy in the following sense. One of the interesting things about democracy, and you can, this is really clear when you talk to like scholars of democracy, of history, historians of democracy, it's like, okay, democracy can only work if everybody playing the game accepts a number of tacit principles that are not explicitly articulated in the rules of the democratic game. There's all of these sort of unspoken, but just sort of rules of decorum, you know, kind of like the rule of the concession speech, you know, <laughs> just think about, just think about Al Gore, Al yeah. Gore, knowing that he and the American people, including myself got shafted. I mean, that was it. So historians in the future will not, you know, that, that, whatever. He, yeah. he got shafted. And there he is, nonetheless, making that speech. Why does he do that? Is that in the rules of democracy? No. That's in the tacit values that surround those rules and that allow it to continue. But what we have seen under Trump is the impressively quick dismantling and, you know, monkey wrenching and violent destruction of that rule set that or not that rule set of those values that yeah. surround the rules. And so that's why we're like, what, where are we, what are we doing? And, and the chaos tactics of the discordians is very similar in the sense that, that, the actual techniques of spreading chaos, of inventing fictions, of mind fuckery are, you know, clearly pretty drastic. They can go south. But if they're embedded in a set of values that are life affirming, erotic, humorous, uh, uh, loving of people of different celebratory, that doesn't mean they're not going to have their enemies. I'm not I'm not painting a rosy view. I'm not right. saying it's all like you know, unicorns and rainbows, but overall those values have an effect on the, the way in which those, those tools and tactics get played out. And now, you know, at least in some domains, the value set is really dark. It's yeah. really, it's really discord for discord's sake. And you see that on the left too, though. I mean, there's, there's a discord for discord's sake on the left too. Um, and I, yeah, that's, that's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a different world. And yet there's weird resonances, you know, and that's, that's kind of what, what my book ended up coming out of. You referred to world building and that makes me think about science fiction, which uh, plays a big role in all three of these guys. 
Um, and then earlier fantasy, and of course Lovecraft, and um, actually a, Philip you know, K. Dick was writer as a science fiction um, writer. And he had a, uh, and he also had some contact kind of with the other contact with uh, the in other, the seventies and uh, kind of found um, and crafting really his own for kind of crafting his own, his own uh, kind of version of version of Gnosticism. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's another, uh, you know, amazing figure who had these kind of extraordinary experiences. I mean, he's different in the sense that he's uh, less less Promethean uh, than the other guys I wrote, write about. He's not trying to like tear down the walls of heaven. He's he's really more of like a traditional religious seeker in some ways, but he's also probably more, well, to put a, a simple term on it, uh, nutty than the other guys. Um, and I mean that in the sense that he was non-neurotypical um, yeah. from from a, from his youth. So he was never uh, quite, uh, you know, he was he was always doing his own thing and suffering his own sufferings, which were considerable throughout his life, just on the mental level alone. Um, so he had, yeah, he had a real rough ride. But then, you know, what an imagination, extraordinary stuff. And uh, yeah, so his his line into those kinds of visionary experiences is, is is somewhat different than these other guys, but there is that connection about science fiction where you're trying to imagine technology, imagine uh, shifts in reality, but ones that aren't just completely supernatural. Uh, you know, a certain a certain way of of uh, of uh, world building. You know, that, I mean, that's one thing that defines both fantasy and, and science fiction, of course, is world building. You got to, you get to construct with your imagination, this kind of alternative world that shares some of our rules and doesn't have as other ones that we don't have. And there's something about religion there. I mean, religion is kind of like that in some ways. Um, so Dick is a fascinating figure because he is, religious in that way and, and in a way that neither the McKenna's nor Wilson were at all. I mean, they were not religious people in that way, but Dick was in, 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 and both in the sense that he would describe himself as a Christian or an Episcopalian and insist on it, but also that he, his world building had more of a cosmological implication to it. Um, he was doing metaphysics when he was building, uh, his world and his, he also had this extraordinary experience around the same time as Robert Anton Wilson occasionally even had some similar imagery, three eyed beings from Sirius and stuff like that. Like things that make you kind of go, what's going on here. There's some meta myth that's lurking yeah. behind all of these guys. And what is that meta myth? Is it a construct itself? Is it another one of these things like you mentioned where the, you know, conspiracy narratives start to get used by people to do other things. Is there a, like a cosmic conspiracy narrative in the early seventies that all in California that all these guys got woven into? Well, there are certainly people who will tell you that and they'll point you toward things that make you, make you ponder for sure. Um, but, you know, all, at the same time, you have someone like Dick where, I mean, he's clearly undergoing extraordinary experiences, many, ex many extraordinary experiences. And, I can't believe they're all just sort of, you know, be, as he sometimes suspected, beamed at him through from some <laughs> kind of weird satellite or something. Uh, and yeah, so in a way, he's sort of the, the he kind of balances out the other stories, part, partly because he has that um, a kind of religious drive in a way, uh, definitely more more of a Christian 
uh, sensibility to him, but still, you know, a total weirdo. Eric, I did have a question for you just um, to, to ask about just kind of one of the things that I've heard you talk about on other shows and that um, something that Serfiel and I have talked about kind of more privately. It's kind of like the, the kind of just where we're at right now, the social media and all this and kind of the, wanted to hit on the, like the kind of the lack of consensus reality. Yeah. I mean, I don't, you know, I, I, as I, in a way I would just kind of invoke what we had described earlier uh, in terms of tactics of survival. Um, I don't know, you know, I don't know what to do about that. I, I mean, I'm just going to admit, I don't have any, I don't have any clue. You know, I, I've, I've read people try to say, oh, well, if people should do this. And you're like, yeah, but that's not going to happen. Or that's what this situation is almost designed to not let, mm-hmm. let happen. And I, you know, it's, it, it's interesting. I sometimes wonder like, what does it feel like in, uh, you know, everywhere around the world, there's, there's trouble, uh, you know, in, in the UK, they have Brexit, which is a similar kind of polarization, but it, you know, in Scotland, yeah, maybe less so. So, you know, I think sometimes it's important to remember that the way we're experiencing it in the United States is not the way it's happening everywhere. Uh, that we have a particular quality of polarization that's Im- embedded in our political system and that has been weaponized by people on both sides, amplified by the media. And now we've created this structure uh and that's what i think of when you talk about the lack lack of consensus we don't we can't even get to to the drawing board on some basic democratic norms and i i don't know where that's going to go i mean it it just might be this but maybe more intense or less intense for a while you know overall ultimately i don't think the republicans can hold that kind of power over decades uh, but it's, it might take a while. Um, you know, I guess it's a little different than the kind of more general question about how do we surf a, 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 a universe, a cosmos where there's so many different ways to um, get your reality fed back to you. There's so many different reality tunnels and whole huge robust platforms that will sustain and attract you to their particular formulation uh that kind of worldview in a way almost requires a kind of psychedelic response of i'm in a world i can't understand i'm going to try to keep it together with uh by paying attention having good humor being in touch with the forces of love with the uh the energies of the earth you know uh but in terms of some kind of mechanism or a solution or I, you know, right, right now it's, I think it's more important to sit with the, to get used to the profound discomfort that that creates. And maybe as we start to recognize the new rules of the world or the new norms of the world we're in, that uh, opportunities and shifts will happen because things always happen in history that nobody can predict. I don't think it's under some, it's, it's, it's not all being written by one hand. 
Uh, and so sometimes you just have to bide your time. I, I tell you, Eric, this has been a, this has been an awesome discussion. Uh, I've really been glad to, to have, uh, to have spoken to you about all this tonight. Um, a lot of this, uh, that you have talked about is really echoes a lot of the things that we have talked about and think so. Great. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad it was fun. I, for you, it was fun for me. Uh, where can people find the books? You know, wherever books are sold, uh, they're, they're not particularly obscure. I think they're mostly, I think almost everything is in, in print. My, I have a website called Technosis, which is the name of my first book, T-E-C-H-G-N-O-S-I-S.com. And I have tons of material on there, too much material. It's hard to, you know, find what you're looking for, but lots of my writing is there and, and information on all the books and uh, as well as almost a decade worth of my podcast expanding mind where I talk about these kinds of things in hour long episodes. And so there's tons of interesting people that I've uh, interviewed and you can access a lot of that stuff there. So yeah, more, more too much. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks a lot for coming on Eric. And um, this should be out in about two weeks. We'll let you know. Great. Well, it was great talking to you guys. You have yeah. a good evening. We're going to close this section out and uh, we'll be back on conspiracy normal. Welcome back to Conspiracy Normal, guys. That was a, uh, I thought, really excellent discussion with Eric Davis on his book High Weirdness and other subjects as well. Any impressions about that, Sergio? Well, it was just really uh, that, you know, those three people that High Weirdness is, is based around are so influential, and uh, particularly Robert Anton Wilson was really influential to me. Uh, so it was cool to take a real deep dive on it uh, in the book and all of his influences. And like he was saying, this isn't just like another hero worship book about these countercultural figures. It's it's um, really in-depth um, and puts their material in different uh, perspectives and really goes through all of their influences, how they ended up being who they were, and some of their strangest experiences. Uh, in the background of the the 1970s and these three people you can continue to see just ripples uh, throughout the decades you know where they're they just continue to influence so much and created such a template in so many different areas it's pretty fascinating yeah yeah it's a it's an interest it's a it's a very very interesting book um, covers these three guys from quite a few different angles and really digs deep into some of the philosophy behind it as well. So, uh, definitely check it out. Really wanted to talk uh, with him about the, um, in his ideas of, uh, COVID being this weird mass uh, initiation into high strange type of phenomenon. And, uh, that, that stuff that he's been talking about, uh, since, all this began has been really fascinating. Yeah, because the idea, I guess the idea is is that people are people are more stuck at home and they got they had more time to kind of uh dig into all this kind of conspiracy stuff and and so that it becomes like you said it was more like an initiation in a way. 
and like all of society is in Chapel Perilous, you know? Yeah. 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 Essentially that's, that's very, very, very true. Well, I just think that, uh, Robert Anton Wilson has the closest thing to a prescription or an answer, uh, to this crazy information environment. You know, those ideas of, uh, maybe logic and radical agnosticism, I think, are a much healthier alternative than uh, the way that so many people are getting, are clinging obsessively um, to their own narratives. Yeah, we're definitely seeing that in the conspiracy culture right now, for sure. I mean, it's, uh, it can tend to get a little bit out of control. So much so that it kind of has become kind of a detriment in a lot of ways, especially now with what we're dealing with. All right. So that's it, guys, for this episode. I want to thank uh, Eric Davis for coming on. And um, we will be back next week with, uh, I believe, Laird Scranton is going to be our guest. Uh, first time I've had him on since, uh, I think, 2015. So... Um, make sure you guys tune in for that. Just a uh, real quick Patreon. Uh, we are, um, still on there and Surfiel can tell you how to access that. You can go to patreon.com slash conspiranormal. Yes. Yes. And I think, uh, we, we may have, uh, we may have some uh, shirts coming as well. So, um, that might be a good thing. If you are a Patreon, those are going to be exclusive. So, um, all the rest of the good stuff, guys, uh, conspiracy world podcast on YouTube. Give us a subscribe there. That always helps. F- excellent five-star reviews on iTunes help as well. And you guys know all the usual stuff that podcasters always say. So I think without further ado, we're going to call it. All right, guys, tune in next week on if you would like to help the show please consider becoming a patreon www.patreon.com slash conspiranormal or leave a one-time donation at conspiranormal.com and please check out our YouTube channel Conspiranormal Podcast Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.